everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Limelight Podcast, where we aim to shed light on the mysteries of Lyme disease and bring you information and resources on the latest research and treatment technologies. Today, for our first episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Hank Sloan. He's a naturopathic doctor and an expert on treating Lyme disease. So today, we're bringing in Dr. Sloan to answer just some very basic questions about what Lyme actually is and how it acts in the body, why it's so difficult to treat, and why it's really important to make sure you're getting the right diagnosis. So without further ado, here is Dr. Sloan. Just to make sure everybody listening that can't see us uh, knows who we are, I'm Maddie. I am uh, one of your lovely patients and and friends. (laughs) And who are you? Absolutely. (laughs) I am Dr. Hank Sloan from the Genesis Center over here in North Georgia. Um, and we are a chronic disease, cancer, autoimmune, immunology. My favorite patient is the multiple symptom patient with no diagnosis, MPSND. Ooh. And that's who we are. The medical mysteries. There you go. So specifically uh, today, we're on here to talk about Lyme. And since this is our first episode, I really want to start off with just the very basics so that we make sure that everyone has a really clear understanding of what we're kind of facing and what we're up against and what it is specifically that you are looking for and what you're treating when you're faced with Lyme disease. So the first question that I want to ask you is what exactly is Lyme for those of us who maybe don't know or who are very confused? Okay, I will try to simplify this (laughs) in my very complex brain. Lyme disease is technically an infection from a spirochete called Borrelia burgdorferi. And... um, The only true classification, according to the CDC, for Lyme disease is the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, That gets a little bit confusing sometimes because there are other species and things like that. But that is the true diagnosis for a CDC Lyme patient. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean um, to be a CDC Lyme patient? And why is that sometimes a tricky a tricky matter so yeah it gets very it gets complicated based on cdc criteria but a patient with a cdc criteria lyme disease um, has to have a certain criteria met on their labs showing that they're above a certain number for their western bot western blot bands as well as their tier one so tier one tests, according to the CDC, is an ELISA, IgM, IgG. And that test is negative or positive. Um, for conventional doctors, they run this test first and they do a reflex. So that means that they don't move to the second tier unless the tier one is positive. So the ELISA has to be positive to be able to run your Western blot bands. And this is where the conventional wisdom gets lost because about 85% of patients 
may have a negative ELISA tier one, mm-hmm. but a positive Western blot test. Interesting. I know uh, from personal experience that that was the case for me for many years. Um, and I know a lot of other people have had similar experiences as well. I don't want to get too deep into talking about labs yet, because um, that's a very juicy topic and we'll get there. Um, but just sticking with the basics for now, I want to know what makes Lyme different from other diseases? The, the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi, and some people may pronounce it a little bit differently. It's all the same, though. We call it BB, Borrelia B. Um, it is a very special, unique bacteria. It has the longest DNA sequence of any bacteria that we know in science. It's the most complicated bacteria. It's the smartest. It's the most stealthiest uh, bacteria in science. And it has uh, the ability to turn into many different variants inside the human body. What makes it different is that it also has the longest life cycle of any bacteria that we can, we can study. It can live up to 80 days in a single cycle. Um, just as a reference point, strep and staph can only live about eight hours. Um, and it replicates very fast and it's very efficient. When you look at Borrelia under a microscope, it has the DNA of a bacteria and it has the longest DNA sequence of any bacteria. That's what makes it, makes it so intelligent. Mm. But when you study it inside the body, um, inside the body, it is a virus. So our labs that we use in Europe call it a virus. They laugh at me when I tried to correct them <laughs> and say, uh, technically, it's a bacteria. No, no, no. It's, it's a virus because inside the body, it is so small. Um, bacterially, it's as small as a virus. It can travel a quarter of a centimeter in the human body in a few hours, which is super, super incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, such a super bug. It just drills back and forth through tissue, and it can, it's very modal, mobile. It makes um, other bacteria look kind of silly. It has a stealth mode because in the body, it's a virus. It has to use our cells to, to replicate, so it uses our DNA. Um, it has the ability to hide into biofilms. So it can become undetectable for many different uh, immune system fragments. It's so smart that it uses this stealth-like mode. So when the immune system approaches it, it releases these little outer surface proteins, which are actually fungal cells. Hmm. And it distracts the immune system to these little distraction points, and it keeps itself protected. And then it occupies a cyst form. So that's what makes it so intelligent and smart and... um, hard to treat. Interesting. So this is something that I've always had a hard time wrapping my head around. And I just kind of want to summarize it to make sure that I'm understanding. And maybe if anyone else is like me having a hard time. Um, So outside the body, when it's in a vector and it's coming into your body, it's a bacteria. And then when it's in your body, it acts, it's still technically a bacteria, but it's acting like a virus based on how small it is, how virulent it is, how quickly it can move through the body and through its ability to not be detected by your immune system. Correct. And, and the fact that it is, um, it has to use our cells and our cells DNA for its replication services. Got it. And then it has the, the fungal aspect of it or the little kind of, uh, grenades that it can send off, uh, to distract all of your 
immune killer cells that want to come in and kill it. Correct. It's a, it's a flare system. Um, and interestingly enough, it's these flares that we detect on the Western blot to determine if we're uh, positive for Lyme disease or not. We're not even detecting the actual bug itself. Interesting. So that's, so are you detecting on the Western blot your body's response to the flares? Correct. We are detecting um, your immune system's response to the outer surface proteins of Borrelia burgdorferi to see how well your immune system responds to it. And if we do catch it at those certain peaks of the immune reaction, then we can catch the peak of an IgM CDC positive, or we can catch it at a more delayed response, which is the IgG CDC positive. Interesting. Because I know, you know, obviously it's not going to be sending off those, I forget what you called them, the little, the grenades, (laughs) the flares. It's not going to be sending those off all the time. So obviously this is kind of a rhetorical question, but that doesn't seem like it would be the most effective way to test for the bug. Very nice analysis, (laughs) Maddie. You know this from, from your history as well. I'm sure if I can remember correctly, you had many, many, many physicians only do tier one, which is the ELISA, IgM, IgG. Of course, if you don't catch that right away, everything's moved over into a different sequence. So, um, so finally, you, you, you come upon uh, some, some doctors who can test it properly. Well, I, had, uh, I was negative on ELISA. I had many doctors do just ELISA. I had some do also Western blot because I was sick in 2009, which was before they made the, the rule where you had to do the ELISA before you could do the Western blot. They did both for me. Um, and I still okay. couldn't get a positive test for a long time. And then the, finally, the first positive test I got was through Igenex after I had been sick for probably th- very extremely symptomatic for probably three months. Um, and then I got sure. a positive Igenex, but I still wasn't CDC positive. I think I only had um, three bands. Okay. Um, and okay. then funnily enough, when I have now been ELISA positive and Western blot positive has been when I've actually felt the best. And then I've been real sure. positive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're positive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, um, the, the conventional tests, the Western blot conventional test only um, is made from a single genotype of the Borrelia bacteria. Um, what, what they did is they grew a whole bunch of spirochetes. Imagine there's millions and millions of spirochetes in this big bucket and they keep reducing. Basically they drain all of them out until there's mm-hmm. one left. And that just happened to be the spirochete. They, that they use that genotype for the, for the conventional lab core quest. Um, you know, those kinds of Western blots and elices, the IGNX and the MDL and other companies that are, that are vector, true vector disease companies, they use multiple genotypes, I think eight to 10 American genotypes and four European genotypes. So that's why that you um, showed positive on those and not the earlier conventional Western blots. It's, um, it's changed and morphed so much. These companies constantly have to keep up with the changing genetics of Borrelia. Yeah. Well, I think, um, and 
I want to stop there just because I want to clarify, because this is also something that I'm learning about now. Um, so the genotype, I just want to make sure that no one's confused. The, the genotype is different than the species. So they're not testing for multiple species. Is that correct? Correct. They're testing for, correct. so the one that was in the first Western blot, was that B31? Yes, and it still is. It still has the B31 outer surface proteins. Okay, but they're testing now. So, okay, explain this a little bit better to me because I clearly okay. am, am missing it a little bit. So they're still testing for the B31. Are they in including other sequences? sequences. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So so the, the, the genotype has shifted over time. Okay. So the, the LabCorp Quest... Typically, um, if you're around that Connecticut area, um, in, in, in that northeastern area, and if you're basically below Atlanta and Florida, then you can test positive on the conventional test if they get to a Western blot. Um, Borrelia burgdorferi has many different types of genotypes. Mm -hmm. And then we get into seq RNA sequences. So the test that we use now we check multiple genotypes of multiple sequences. Um, if you test positive for a different Borrelia, like Borrelia afzeli or Borrelia garini, that is not technically Lyme disease. That's a different species, and those are called Lyme-like illnesses, and they're a lot easier treated. Interesting. Well, that brings me to uh, a really nice segue, well done, into the next question. Um, why is Borrelia burgdorferi so difficult to treat? Because it's the smartest bacteria in history. Um, it has a gene sequence that is very complicated. So in its ability to stealth inside the human body, it hides in our cells, especially our white blood cells. It attacks our white blood cells. And then um, it doesn't need much oxygen to survive. It actually creates this biofilm. Um, the biofilm is a is a is a is a fatty layer that is emitted by spirochetes of Borrelia, and they kind of have a party inside their little their little castle, and they make a moat around it. And um, when the immune system tries to approach it, it sends off those little balls, so it distracts it with its flares, um, and that surface is a lipophilic surface. That means, for example, and this is really important, that's why doxycycline may make someone feel better for a few weeks or a few months, um, and then you see a return. It's because doxycycline is not lipophilic. It only kills spirochetes that are alive in the blood. It cannot encroach on the biofilms. So it can make you symptomatically feel better as it actually goes further away from the antibiotic and creates more biofilms to hide, even goes into a dormant phase. So the only time you feel bad with Lyme bacteria or other viruses is when it is in an immune activated phase. You only feel bad when your immune system is trying to do its job. And that's just another sign that um, we, we do find patients that are CDC criteria that feel pretty mm -hmm. good. Um, they, they're just not having their immune reactions at that time. Or patients who have had bacteria of Borrelia for a long, long time, 
and they may feel okay, but they're having a lot of damage done in their system because this spirochete is so damaging. Um, well, I think, um, you know, I, I like to use the word, um, and sometimes people get confused, but I like to use the word remission with Lyme because, you know, I've, you know, been dealing with this now for over 10 years. Um, I know a lot of other people who've had it for decades and, you know, everyone who kind of has a long history of chronic Lyme will often have stories of that they've had peaks and valleys where they've gone through periods of being extremely, extremely sick. And then all of a sudden, and sometimes without even really changing a therapy or really, you know, sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, I just decided to stop treating. And then all of a sudden I felt better. Um, you yeah. know, I hear that yeah. often. Um, and so that's, you know, as I understand now, it's just because the majority of your Lyme and, you know, for me having this happen, the majority of my Lyme sure. went into that biophilic, uh, hiding form and there wasn't as much right. of it floating around. And, you know, I kind of, it was almost like my immune system and the Lyme had a, had a peace treaty going on. <laughs> sure. Sure. It's, it, um, it, it, well, it's smart enough to secrete an enzyme that suppresses our natural killer cell functions. Um, we call that a CD57 test. So it suppresses our natural killer cells, our T cells, it activates lymphocytes, and it, it interferes with our production of heat shock proteins, which is our ability to make heat in the body, which is a fever. So you hear, I hear patients all the time say, I never ever get a mm -hmm. fever. And I'm like, yeah, because the bugs are controlling your temperature gauge and it doesn't want you to have a fever. That's why um, in Europe, a lot of hyperthermia is done to induce a fever state because bugs, all bugs, uh, don't want a higher temperature. And you talked about the peaks in the valleys of the Lyme, the IgM peak, and then there's a trough and then there's an IgG peak. And there's a, a post-Lyme treated patient who's in remission or sometimes actually with the therapies we're doing now, we have cures, many of them. Um, I think your test would be pretty good to show that sequence of how our immune system goes through the ability to shift it from IgM to IgG and then in a past sequence. And this is true for all viruses and bacteria. Um, we have to go through this. Lyme doctors have always taken a Western blot and looked at it as a snapshot in mm -hmm. time. And it's truly not. You need to compare your your sequences of your Western blots to see where your numbers have moved over time and look at the intensity of the band. So you can see it shifting as you go along through proper treatment. So instead of looking at the Western blot as a, a snapshot or a photograph, you should be looking at it more like a roadmap. You should. Absolutely. Um, IGENX and MDL. Um, I personally use MDL because instead of a, a, a negative or a, plus one, plus two, plus three um, of the intensity of the band, we actually get a number there from zero to 600. So I see the band and then I see how strong the intensity of the band is. And that's what allows me to graph a patient as they go through different sequences of your immune system doing its job. So that kind of brings me into another question. Um, you see how I can ask this in a simple way. Um, I kind of want to get to the basis of understanding why our bodies react the way they do to Lyme. Why does it make us so sick? Um, and from what I'm gathering, it's not just the Lyme. It's really our body's reaction to what the Lyme is doing. Does that, is, is that correct? 
Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, over, over time, um, for an initial infection, your immune system, our immune system, is supposed to go through an initial phase where it's just recognizing the little spirochetes. And the spirochetes um, secrete those enzymes, they suppress your immune system, but it hasn't quite gained its speed yet to suppress the immunity altogether. So your immune system gains enough speed and it attacks the spirochetes. And that's where we see that initial increase on the IgM bands. And you may even test positive on ELISA if you had that primary Connecticut genotype. Um, and when you're in that phase, you you first usually come up on your first illness that looks like a whole lot of different things. Oh my gosh. From, you know, the fevers, arthritis, the, the headaches, the meningitis, encephalopathies. Um, the initial symptoms are your immune system trying to get control over this bug. And if we do catch it at that peak, we can classify someone as a CDC criteria positive Lyme disease. If we catch it too early, they're not quite at the peak. If we catch it too late, they've gone through the IgM and they're on the other side in the trough. Um, that's why a lot of times you'll hear me say, um, I, I don't necessarily call it Lyme disease because that's the diagnosis of a CDC criteria at certain peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times I'll just reference it as Borrelia because what it truly is is a, an infection of a bacteria called Borrelia. Whether you're CDC positive or not CDC positive, we can still know which bands cause that Borrelia infection. So are you, do you get different symptoms based on where you are in the, in your journey through going through these peaks and valleys of IG, IgM and IgG? So is IgM typically going to show more of your acute symptoms, like, you know, your histamine reactions and your fevers and your headaches and, um, you know, the joint inflammation, yeah. and then you're getting it kind of as you go through that and you go to your IgG side, is that where you're seeing more of like, um, you know, chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or um, kind of these like autoimmune disease regions? Correct. Yes. And it takes a long time to get there um, for some people. And some people it takes, it's really quick. Um, the, my youngsters, my teenagers and my young 20 year olds, they usually feel pretty fine. And then all of a sudden they wake up the next morning and they feel like they've had a stroke or a sudden MS um, diagnosis literally overnight or over a few days. And then that's, that's because of the immune system strength and ability that the Sparky is always trying to hide. So when you have that initial IgM, um, that's when typically people will say, that's when I think I had Lyme disease. Doctors usually don't catch it there. When they test, they don't test it correctly. So the patient leaves not knowing really what's wrong with them. Um, maybe they give them doxycycline for a few weeks, which suppresses the bacteria and it goes into further stages. Um, now, my patients that have been treated with IV antibiotics for many years, they're actually my worst symptom patients because those antibiotics really make it hide into deep tissues away from blood flow so it can't be recognized. Um, if it's out of the blood, antibiotics can't affect it. So it starts to be very neurological Lyme. And you're right, the further along that it goes post IgM into the trough, I call it, and then into the IgG, somewhere in that area, patients are stuck. Mm -hmm. And without the right treatment, they're stuck in that sequence and they never 
get improvement. And originally it looks like Lyme or the symptoms look like a Lyme infection. Um, after a while, maybe those go away, but now we start to see precursors to autoimmune disease of any kind, especially brain um, myelization diseases, um, arthritis, rheumatoid. I'll say that every autoimmune disease that I treat is an issue of a low-grade infection in that tissue and our immune system trying to help us out so it doesn't kill us. Very interesting stuff. It's a lot of good information. Um, I think just so we, for the sake of keeping this uh, concise for everyone, um, I think we should uh, kind of wrap it up. All right. All righty. I appreciate yeah, it, Maddie. I appreciate you. This has been really wonderful. And uh, I can't wait for the next episode. Wow, guys, thank you so much for listening. That was an awesome first episode. I can't wait to record more. We're going to be doing one of these a week. And in some of the next episodes, we're going to dive deeper into different topics about Lyme research, new treatments. We're going to talk about um, healing and just ways to get your body back on track after suffering with Lyme disease and all types of stuff. We are also going to answer questions from you guys. If you have a question that you are thinking about right now that you would like me to ask the doctor, please send it to me. Um, you can send me an Instagram message. My handle is at Maddie Ray Coop, M-A-D-D-Y-R-A-E-C-O-O-P. Or you can submit it on the Genesis Center Lyme Information Group Facebook page. So you can send us a message there and we will answer it on the show. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that. I can't wait for the next one. We'll see you next week. Thanks again. Bye-bye.